This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 40 of World to Win. Um, Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and also click the bell button to be notified when we go live or when we upload a new video. And also, I'm really excited to say that we now have a podcast. Well, if you watch it on YouTube, then uh, it's going to be a bit repetitive, but we have um, everything that goes on the show on YouTube is now on a podcast as well. You can find it on any platform uh, from Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you want to see Google Podcasts. So if you are a bit like me and you don't want to watch a YouTube video for a, a whole hour, so a podcast can be the perfect solution for you. So you can find it right after we go live and you can find a few of our previous episodes live as well. So that is really exciting. But also uh, today's episode, I am personally looking forward to it so much because we have a very interesting subject. We're going to talk about um, the situation happening in the UK right now. Like, you know, we we often have UK-based guests on our show, but we rarely actually talk about the UK. And I think the situation right now is very, very interesting. Um, we have uh, so many crucial developments are happening across the UK. Um, But before we delve into it, I want to say hi to my co-host. How are you doing, Toya? I'm great, Yara. How's it going over there in London? It's good. It's good. We have had a lockdown open up uh, for a couple of weeks now. So um, we're kind of in a limbo situation. Uh, how, How is it in Boston? Uh, yeah, we're pretty much back to normal. Still the battle with schools. You know, I've been back to work for a while, so it doesn't feel too different for me, but the subways are filling up. So I think that's kind of the gauge for where we're at kind of getting back to normal. You know what I mean? Yeah. And obviously there's a lot happening uh, around uh, the UK right now, but I think we can kind of talk about this a little bit more throughout this episode. Um, So without further ado, uh, we can start. So, you know, a few months ago, Uh, Britain was widely dubbed as Plague Island uh, because of one of the most disastrous handlings of COVID-19 in the world. But and economically had the the worst recession uh, in in the OECD in 2020. And the worst uh, was it was the worst uh, crisis that was hit by uh, British standards for over 300 years. So it was intense to say the least but of course we also have brexit and have had it for a while um that we've discussed this on world to win quite a bit so you can go through our previous episodes but um it still continues to be the source of crisis and also instability in the uk and europe generally and then it's it's also going to see it's very very noticeable when we talk about coronavirus because of the vaccine and this kind of vaccine nationalism again something that we've talked about over and over on the show um but here in specifically in the uk we're seeing the two sides um kind of uh kind of going at it after a historic brexit deal um that i'm sure we're going to talk more about But this episode is going to focus on kind of like a theme that's been going on in the UK uh, for the past uh, couple of years or so, which kind of feeds into all of these different crises uh, that are facing uh, the British ruling class. So we're seeing something that can be described as kind of like the disintegration 
of the United Kingdom itself. Uh, I mean, you know, in a couple of weeks, we've seen Scotland, uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll see Scotland voting uh, in an important election uh, that uh, are being kind of framed as a referendum on moving towards independence, uh, which, and it's consistent, there's a consistent majority now in favour of independence in the polls. So, you know, uh, there was a referendum just a few years ago uh, that was very, very close, but now we're there's a lot of talk about another referendum. And then at the same time, we've seen re-emergence of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland on a scale that hasn't been seen in years. And even Wales is becoming part of this kind of disintegration picture with several opinion polls showing rising support for independence uh, in the country. So is it game over for the UK? Uh, and do, do we think that Great Britain is going to become Little England? Uh, I think uh, this is going to be a really kind of interesting show to kind of look at these themes and see where as socialists we think we're headed and what our positions on it are. So we have two really cool guests here tonight with us. So we've got Daniel from Belfast, who is a member of the Socialist Party, uh, the ISA in Ireland. How are you doing? Hey, uh, good to speak to you. So, Daniel, I know that there's a lot going on in Belfast right now. Can you tell me what, what have you been up to in the past week or so? Well, obviously, our members have been out uh, supporting bus workers who took, uh, who walked out and took strike action in response to the, some of the sectarian violence. But we'll talk about that in more detail later, maybe. But other than that, I, I've also been spending some of my time reading by um, reading Troubled Times by Peter Haddon, which has just been republished by the Socialist Party, um, which uh, is a Marxist analysis of the national question in Ireland. And I think really relates to some of the topics that we're going to be discussing today. Yeah, I'm really glad you're plugging this book because I think it's one of the most, bri generally all of Peter Haddon's books are brilliant for any socialist. And I think they show this really nuanced and important approach that we have towards national question in Ireland specifically, but generally towards national questions. And I think anyone who's listening to this episode will benefit from reading it. So I'm sure we're going to put a link in the description uh, to buy uh, the new edition of the book. So thank you, Daniel. And also, we also have um, a Claire, who is from London, from Socialist Alternative, the ISA in England, Wales and Scotland. So how are you doing, Claire? Hi, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm great. So what have you been up to in the past week or so? Well, I've been really buzzing, actually, after on Friday, we had a fantastic public meeting in England and Wales, which was kind of launching Socialist Feminist Alternative. Um, it was fantastic we had a great array of speakers um discussing how we stamp out sexism and racism in schools in workplaces and obviously in society as a whole and i think that that was a really powerful response to some quite tragic events which have taken place in the uk like the murder of sarah everard and many other women who have been perhaps not as well um covered in the media so I think that that was a great uh, event and um, I followed on from that by supporting activity, being out um, fighting for a decent pay rise for NHS workers who've seen us through this pandemic and who've been slapped in the face by the government with a 1% pay rise in reality of that. Yeah, thank you so much, Claire. I think this this has been a really busy week to like for everyone uh, across the UK. But I think 
uh, our organization has been doing a really good job that meeting you talked about such a great meeting you know we we have a lot of meetings about socialist feminist um, uh, events and history but that meeting was really kind of it was very clear that women are kind of moved to action in the UK kind of after a very long wave of uh, kind of a lull in the movement. So uh, really excited to hear about that. And I think we can, I, I want to ask both of you the first question because I think we, we need some background here. So it seems kind of bizarre that only a hundred years ago, Britain was the world's number one imperialist power. And there was a territorial empire that spanned half the world. And, you know, uh, everyone knows about Britain as this imperialist power. But now we see the ruling class having to worry about keeping Scotland, one of the kind of basic um, uh, uh, places in the UK. Uh, And it's kind of like part of this continuation of uh, seeing Britain kind of crumbling apart. So can you explain what's happening in the UK right now and how it's linked to the decline of Britain as a global power? Well, absolutely. I mean, what we've witnessed and what we are witnessing is part of the long, inglorious decline of British imperialism, as you say, from being the world's number one power to being at best a second rate imperialist power and really it was that strength of British imperialism which was the the glue which held together the nations that make up Great Britain in inverted commas and the fact that we've seen that decline is part of what has led to this sharpening set of contradictions which we now see those are both sharpening class contradictions but also sharpening national contradictions within uh, the UK and within those different nations which make it up. And I think particularly the legacy of years of deindustrialization, of austerity and of hardship, which has been meted out to the working class across the island, but particularly felt in working class communities in Scotland, for example, that's a huge part of why now there is this sense of wanting to rebel against uh, that uh, oppression and that uh, th- those kind of harsh measures which have been imposed, being imposed on working class people. And one of the ways in which people are, are, are trying to do that is through expressing a desire to break away from the UK and to have national independence in the case uh, of Scotland and increasingly also uh, in Wales as well. Thanks, Claire. I think these are really important points and I want to know what Daniel thinks about it because obviously the situation in Northern Ireland has been a lot of, uh, like, for the the past 100 years, there has been uh, a lot of talk about whether Northern Ireland is part of the UK or not. So I want to know what you think uh, this link is. Sure, I mean, I I think it's... um unfortunately really easy to draw a connecting line between the events that we've seen uh, on the streets of Belfast and other places in Northern Ireland uh, over recent days and events which took place a hundred years ago particularly the attempts uh, by the British ruling class to secure their interests in what is their oldest uh, colony. I mean just a, a few days from now we'll see the centenary of the partition of, uh, of Ireland which Irish socialist James Connolly correctly predicted would lead to what he called a carnival of reaction 
really it was the culmination of the British ruling class's strategy of using sectarianism to divide and rule. Um, because in the wake of the Russian Revolution and after the First World War, they faced a movement here and a rising tide of class struggle, which was bringing together workers, North and South, Catholic and Protestant, in a movement that actually had revolutionary potential. And they feared that it could threaten their rule, not just in Ireland, but also that it could inspire similar movements across the empire and even threaten their rule at uh, at home as well. Um, so they consciously set about introducing sectarian division uh, and injecting that poison in, uh, into the working class in Ireland. Unfortunately, they were partly able to get away with that because of mistakes made by the Labour leadership at the time, who basically bent the knee to the pro-capitalist and essentially Catholic nationalism of Sinn Féin, which was had no appeal for Protestant workers in the north of the country. And so they were able to um, you know, oversee the engineering of two backward and sectarian states um, on the uh, on the island, um, and I think that the, like the scars of that still definitely have not gone away. You know, I mean, back in 1998, imperialism you know championed the Good Friday Agreement, which led to the establishment of the power sharing institutions here as like a step towards the end of of the of the conflict. But in reality, it simply was a a temporary agreement to disagree and kicked the can uh, down the road. Um, but unfortunately, the events of recent days re demonstrate that our society still remains really um, profoundly um, d divided uh, and that uh, sectarianism remains a really, unfortunately, a really potent force in uh, society here today. Thank you so much for uh, both of you for, for introducing this topic. I'm really excited for this episode to get into these details. But I want to start um, talking a little bit about Boris Johnson. What we've seen in the media is him being referred to as the Prime Minister of England. And we know that he's not just simply the Prime Minister of England. He's the Prime Minister of all the United Kingdom. Um, and there were some, you know, um, national tensions between the different countries before the pandemic. Um, but can you talk specifically about how the pandemic has heightened these national tensions? Sure. I mean, the Tory government's handling of the pandemic, particularly in its early phase, you know, I think has been as callous and disastrous as everyone would have expected, reflected in a death toll of 130,000 uh, people, which I think is one of the highest per capita in the world. I mean, just to give a few examples, they ignored the warnings about the need to prepare for a pandemic. Um, when COVID did emerge, it was reported that Boris Johnson's key advisor summed up the government's strategy as herd immunity, um, protect the economy, and if that means some pensioners die, then too bad. And just by herd immunity, what they meant was simply let the virus spread through the population and uh, and see what happens, you know. Um, because of their desire to defend profit, they were extremely slow to introduce lockdown measures. They rushed to reopen uh, society, which led to new waves of the virus and tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths. And, you know, reflecting their um, their allegiance to the, to the free market and to the idea that the private sector uh, does best, they handed um, contracts worth billions to private companies, particularly ones tied to the Tory party, um, uh, for, for example, the sourcing of PPE uh, and the creation of a track and trace system, both of which were absolutely um, disastrous. 
Um, and there were even suggestions that the government in Westminster tried to intervene to um, get England prioritised over Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland in terms of access to, uh, to PPE. Uh, the Tories hypocritically joined in with ordinary people in clapping on, you know, clapping on doorsteps to um, acknowledge the role being played by health workers and other frontline uh, workers in the context of the pandemic. But then they've decided to offer them only a 1% pay rise in inverted commas, a pay cut in real terms, despite the role that they've played and despite the billions that have been hoarded by the pandemic profiteers. And they did all of this with like the, the air of arrogance and self-entitlement, which only people who went to uh, English private schools, I think, can, can effectively um, carry out. So in, in that context, you know, I think it's been relatively easy for the devolved governments in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland to, by comparison, see, seem relatively competent and and, you know, concerned about the health and well-being of ordinary people. Um, Although I would say that I think the difference has more been in um, has been more a question of degrees or of presentation than of a fundamental um, difference of, of approaching as capitalist governments. The devolved administ- administrations have all operated on what's in the interests of big business um, as well. So I think that that has fed into processes that were already underway and particularly given the weakness of the Labour Party under Keir Starmer, which, number one, is lagging way behind in the polls and does not look like it's going to win an election anytime soon. And number two, doesn't seem like it really offers anything fundamentally different. It's absolutely understandable that that would be reflected in a rise in support for independence uh, in Scotland, where, as Claire said, it's now, it seems to be a definite majority view and highest most workers and young people, um, but also a rise in support for independence in Wales. I think the way that's been reflected in Ireland, or in, sorry, in Northern Ireland, has been um, a kind of increased sense of urgency amongst Catholics uh, in the North, that there's a need to break away from, from Westminster in order to get away from everything the Tory rule um, represents. Although, again, we wouldn't say that the Southern Government in Dublin represents any real alternative to that this has all been really interesting and it you know i i I think to the situation in the u.s where we had donald trump um who was president during the pandemic and then biden got to come in as president to see us through the pandemic with the vaccine but boris johnson in the uk you know he's been prime minister throughout this whole time um yet he still is uh ranked pretty high in the polls so claire can you talk about why that is is it because of the way um the vaccine has been rolled out yeah well i mean I think it seems paradoxical, really, that this absolutely disastrous handling that there's been of the COVID-19 pandemic under Johnson, under his leadership, has somehow still given way to a situation now where you can see a a poll lead, a quite consistent poll lead for Johnson and the Tories. Does that represent a sense of real support for the government and the way that they've handled it, absolutely not. I don't think that that's true at all. I think there's huge anger actually seething underneath the surface in British society. And we've seen small glimmers of that, even during the the lockdown. But I also think that the the other side of it is that, unfortunately, even though uh, the uh, government has handled it 
horrifically, perhaps even more uh, more incompetent, has been the opposition offered by Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. And under Keir Starmer, Labour really has been reclaimed as a, a vehicle to advance the interests of the capitalist class. And right now, in this extreme crisis, which the capitalist system is facing, and in this pandemic, the interests of the capitalist class are best served by having an opposition which is almost entirely ineffectual and which primarily parrots the government's line or at least uh, criticises only in the, the most uh, the most uh, sort of finickety um, elements of detail rather than in terms of the overall approach that the government has taken and that has scandalously allowed Boris Johnson to kind of claim credit for the vaccine rollout which has been somewhat more successful in the UK than in other parts of Europe, uh, partly and in, in large part because of the role of the National Health Service and of its workers in organising that on, on a massive scale. And, you know, the work that those people have done has not been rewarded by this government in terms of a pay rise or even uh, a, a pay uh, increase, which would claw back some of what's been la lost over the last 10 years. In fact, those workers have been slapped in the face by Boris Johnson. And really, um, it's a scandal that he's been allowed to get away with this in the way that he has. And I think that really there's going to be a reckoning for what has happened in this country uh, in the next period. And it will be workers, particularly those who have suffered in the NHS and in on the front lines of this crisis, which we will hopefully see as we begin to emerge from the lockdowns and so on. Yeah, I mean, why are you saying that the clapping wasn't enough to reward the NHS for the heroic uh, handling of this pandemic when everything was against them, including the government that uh, is now gaining that support? It's absolutely ridiculous. And I think this kind of leads me on to the next kind of point um, that we talked a little bit about before, um, but kind of the, lo the, the last election where Boris Johnson um, uh, kind of won uh, was a, a lot of people were saying they was kind of uh, made on the question of Brexit. Um, and I think that it's kind of contradictory, like you said about the vaccine rollout and the handling of the pandemic, how at the same time Boris Johnson is doing a terrible job, but is able to spin it as a great job. I think the same goes with the state with with the the state of uh, the UK as a union um, and Brexit you know because i think it just seems like Brexit has fanned the flames uh, it was kind of the the oil that was put into the fire uh, when we talk about the kind of national um kind of risings in the country and i think you know oppo opposing brexit is one of the biggest parts of the snp's arguments for independence for scotland and also yeah, the the part of the brexit deal that are affecting northern ireland uh, seem to be a big part of the anger there right now with all the riots that are going on. So what do you think uh, the connection is between Brexit and also the increasing national divide? So I think the SNP have kind of cynically attempted to use the issue of Brexit to make the idea of a independent capitalist Scotland seem more credible. They're essentially saying that we can 
leave the UK and be embraced by the European Union. And that will uh, give an economic foundation to an independent Scottish capitalist state. And they're obviously um, playing on that with working class voters in Scotland, many of whom are concerned at what they see as increasing nationalism and racism, um, perhaps south of the border and epitomised by Boris Johnson, a Bullingdon boy, a, a, super, a representative of the super rich, and their opposition to all of those kinds of things is perhaps being tied together with opposition to the EU, although, um, with, sorry, support for the EU although that is a very different kind of um, feeling to the one which is um, there for the capitalist representatives of um, the ruling class, such as Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP's leadership. So I think that there is uh, you know, quite a lot of um, cynicism, really, in, in what the SNP is doing. And, and actually, um, what's clear is that it's not going to be very straightforward for um, a capitalist Scotland to even gain entry to the European Union, let alone laying a foundation for prosperity and all of the things which the SNP will say that they offer. Um, and in a way, um, it's a kind of um, it's a kind of mirage. And really, for working class people in Scotland, what's necessary is socialist change if they want to see um, the uh, kind of Scotland that. Uh, those who are supporting independence are fighting for. Thanks, Claire. Yeah, I think I think it's it's like a, that. That's kind of the main point, isn't it? When we talk about questions of national uh, rising, we are talking about the difference between starting a country that would divide capitalist state on a capitalist basis, or on a socialist state that would actually progress the people living in the country. But I think at the same time, we have the situation with Northern Ireland, which I think is in many ways a little bit more complicated um, because there's obviously the question of a border on the Irish Sea, so a border that separates um, mainland Britain and uh, the island of Ireland, uh, or one between uh, the north and the south of Ireland. So uh, can you, Daniel, can you tell us a little bit about what, the riots are about what is the connection to Brexit and um, kind of why Brexit is even part of the question of Northern Ireland. Yeah, I mean, as you say, I think it is it is complex and it might seem strange to people um, from outside Northern Ireland, you know, that people are rioting on the streets here uh, over something connected to Brexit. But I, I think the, the conflict, the heightened tensions and instability that we're seeing here are partly at least rooted in the failure of the capitalist establishment, both in the UK and the EU, to find a solution to the quandary of Brexit, which didn't harden borders here in either um, direction. Um, I mean, in 2016, a majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to stay in the EU. But I do think it's important to, to note that while an overwhelming majority of Catholics voted to remain, um, a majority of Protestants actually voted to leave. Uh, I mean, maybe just to explain that briefly, I mean, I think that uh, most Catholics um, saw the, the EU as like a guarantor of the peace process and of their rights within the uh, the northern state. And they also feared that Brexit would lead to, you know, a deepening of division within Ireland, north and south, um, which they would see as a blow to their national aspirations. 
Um, Protestants, on the other hand, tended to be more divided along class lines. It was more similar to like the north of England, where you know more working class areas voted to leave, partly as like an anti-establishment, um, you know, uh, expression of feeling, um, while more affluent areas voted to remain within the EU. Um, but I think after the referendum, Northern Ireland became kind of caught in this tug of war um, between the respective interests of the two capitalist blocs of, of the British government and the uh, and the EU. Uh, the Johnson government wanted to leave the EU's um, single market and customs uh, union uh, entirely. But as you said, this posed the question of, well, th- well then, where will the regu- regulatory border fall? Will it be a hardened border on the island of Ireland or will it be a new regulatory border between um, Britain and Northern Ireland and we warned that either would anger one community be seen as a blow to their national identity and aspirations and would result in a rise of tensions. I mean ultimately Johnson opted for the option of a border in the Irish Sea despite saying that no British government could agree to such a deal whenever he was criticising his predecessor Theresa May um, and that border came into effect on the 1st of January. And it's led to disruption of supply chains. You know, it's led to empty shelves uh, at times on, in supermarkets in Northern Ireland. Um, but I think much more important is its symbolic uh, effect and the fact that it's seen by most Protestants as uh, a de facto economic United Ireland and a step towards a politically united Ireland uh, in uh, potentially in the future, which is something most Protestants vociferously oppose uh, and fear could lead to them becoming an oppressed and, and beleaguered uh, minority. So th- there is a, a real anger and sense of betrayal, I think, in the Protestant community um, against the British government, which hasn't existed since for decades, probably since like the, the mid uh, 1980s, where you saw mass protests against the, the Anglo-Irish uh, uh, agreement. And I think that that is beginning to find some expression now uh, in the riots that have taken place recently. I love this discussion we're having about Scotland. I, I'm not going to lie, I don't know a ton about it, but it's super fascinating. And I think it's fair to say that you know, a lot of people on this side of the Atlantic don't realize the, you know, the intricate nature of the relationship between all of these countries in the UK. Um, but Claire, I want to focus a little bit on Scottish independence itself. You know, as socialists, we don't always just support any old independence movement um, that happens. So why specifically do socialists support Scottish independence? Well, I think, first of all, it's important to say that a kind of fundamental point of principle for socialists and Marxists is that we support the right of nations to self-determination. And as you say, Toya, that doesn't always mean that we automatically support separation. For us, what we have to really weigh out is what is in the best interests of working class people and what is the best way to unify working class people both within a nation, but also crucially internationally um, and across borders. So in the case of Scotland, it's not automatic that we would support independence. But I think we have to ask what lies behind this recent surge in support that there is in Scotland for independence. And I don't think that this is an independence movement which is primarily about a love of bagpipes or kilts or the kind of trappings of Scottish Scottish national identity. This is fundamentally, very, very fundamentally, about a sense of 
uh, grievance against decades of austerity, of hardship, of workers being subject to a race to the bottom in terms of wages, conditions, and a sense also that there was never consent given by working class people in Scotland to any of these policies. And uh, it's the case that ever since, uh, you know, especially since Thatcher, I think that there's been a very, very strong feeling amongst working class people in Scotland that these are policies being imposed by the Westminster government on the people, the working class people of Scotland without their consent. And that has perhaps even, uh, you know, become a stronger feeling as we've gone through the last 10 years, the wake of the financial crash um, and austerity being heaps upon workers uh, across the board. And one of the responses that there has been to that, particularly in Scotland, has been thinking, well, perhaps one way for us to escape from this nightmare of austerity and capitalist policies is for us to break away and to become independent. And so really it's, it's, it's a movement which is being driven by working class people, by young people, and really by the most radicalised sections of society. Um, and for that reason, we do support independence for Scotland, but we don't stop at saying that. We don't accept the idea that's put forward by the likes of the SNP, the likes of Nicola Sturgeon, that uh, uh, you know a, a capitalist Scotland on its own or perhaps in the EU, as I was saying earlier, is going to be the solution to all of those problems that I've outlined um, for working class people in terms of their conditions and uh, their rights and so on. Um, far from it, in fact, you know, a, a capitalist Scotland could in many ways uh, accelerate some of those attacks on working class people because of the economic situation that such a country would find itself in. So we always, whenever we raise the need for independence for Scotland link that to a fight for fundamental change in the way society is organised and the struggle for socialism, uh, the struggle to put working class people in charge. And naturally, that means we have to also point to the need to link up with and to build solidarity between workers north of the border in Scotland and workers across England and Wales uh, to struggle for a socialist Scotland, but linked to um, a socialist federation of Scotland, England, Wales, and of course, Ireland as well. I really appreciate that response because, you know, as you outlined, it's not just, um, you know, this question of cultural identity, which a lot of people do link um, independence, to, you know, to. It's actually a question of being able to determine, um, you know, how the, the government runs, how the economy runs, resources and, and, you know, cuts to public services and having a say in those types of things, um, you know, is, is very crucial in the question of independence. Um, but I like, too, how you took it a step further in saying that it's not just independence in it ends there. We need to take it um, um, further towards a, a socialist society if we really want uh, this true independence that the Scottish working class and youth are fighting for. Um, so before we go to the next question, Claire, um, you know, what's your perspective on what's going to happen after the elections? Well, it seems most likely that despite the crisis that Nicola Sturgeon is currently facing and the SNP are currently facing, which was um, around the figure of Alex Salmond, the, the former leader of the SNP, who um, was embroiled in a uh, kind of series of allegations of, of sexual assault. And there's a huge sort of 
crisis which has developed in the SNP's leadership. But it, it does seem, despite that, that the SNP will probably win the majority in the Scottish Parliament in the next set of elections. And Sturgeon and the SNP are under pressure to fight and to be seen to fight, partly because of uh, the fact they now have rivals in terms of uh, Alex Salmond's outfit. They're really under a lot of pressure to be seen to be advancing um, and taking real steps towards independence for Scotland, which is obviously you know what their party is set up to try and achieve um, and they're in a real difficult situation because they have kind of committed to an approach to fighting for independence which is entirely constrained by the legal framework set up by the capitalist UK and that means that in order to have a, a legal referendum in Scotland they probably need the consent or they almost certainly need the consent of the Westminster government, and that means Boris Johnson. And meanwhile, Boris Johnson is actually going in the opposite direction, is seeking to, in an, e in an even more crude way than perhaps before, double down on the idea of the union. And that's part of you know his own problems that he has in his party and the need for him to look over his shoulders at the people who have uh, you know put him where he is, the, the, the hard Brexiteers, um, that, that that make up the backbenches of the Tory party and they are absolutely determined not to allow a referendum for, for Scotland. So I think what that means, that kind of cocktail of um, both a, uh, you know, Westminster government blocking the, uh, the, the move towards a referendum on independence and a feeling in Scotland that there is a mandate for a new referendum. Well, what does that point towards? I think what that points towards is increasing uh, movements of working class and young people potentially on the streets, um, seeing as they feel that you know this is being blocked and isn't going to happen through the sort of legal routes which the SNP has put forward. I think what that points towards is potentially mass struggle, um, which will take on this issue of a fight to have a referendum and to leave the UK. Thanks, Claire. I think this is really interesting to hear about Scotland in particular. And I think all of this, these developments within kind of the, the, the boundaries of the capitalist system are incredibly important, both to our understanding of the national question generally, but also for understanding kind of like the practices that we as socialists are pushing for when it comes to independence of the working class. Uh, both on a national basis and uh, just as, you know, fighting for a socialist country. Um, so I wanted to kind of move a little bit to Northern Ireland because I think that the, everyone wants to know what's happening with the riots right now and why, because I think we touched, up, uh, we touched on it a little bit before, but I think for outsiders outside of countries uh, like Northern Ireland, um, with maybe kind of violent national questions and conflict, it seems it seems quite bizarre that there's so much violence on the streets, especially now that we've had this kind of for twenty years we've had this idea of uh, peace in Northern Ireland. Everything is uh, you know is okay now. There's no national conflict anymore. Everyone's living happily ever after, singing kumbaya. So. Can you explain to us, Daniel, why this is happening on the streets of Northern Ireland right now? Sure, if, if only it was that simple. Um, 
I mean, we touched on the issue of Brexit um, earlier, um, and I think that that is key to understanding what's happening at the moment. There's definitely an element of um, hard loyalist or hardline unionist paramilitaries being behind coordinating some of the protests and, and riots that have been taking place, which are the most widespread and serious we've seen in at least a decade and have also seen some clashes between Catholic and Protestant youth on what are euphemistically called peace lines or peace walls um, in Belfast as uh, as well. But I, I don't think that this can simply be reduced to the actions of you know relatively small um, uh, you know sectarian groups. I think it does reflect a real sense of anger within the Protestant working class community at the moment. Um, yes, around Brexit uh, as we discussed, but I think another immediate trigger was the announcement that um, no leading members of, of Sinn Féin, which is the largest nationalist party, were going to be prosecuted for clearly breaching the COVID regulations, which they helped shape um, whenever they attended a mass funeral for Bobby Story, who was a leading figure um, in their in their movement. And I think that that has added to a sense um or a perception in the Protestant community that Sinn Féin are untouchable, that they get away uh, with anything that they, they get whenever they, they want, and that has added into the frustration which exists in acting as like a spark and a catalyst for the protests and riots that we've seen. And undoubtedly, like there is, you know, an element of hypocrisy on the part of Sinn Féin, who, for example, have refused to apologise for attending the funeral and breaking the COVID uh, legislation, um, but their leader, Michelle O'Neill, in the North, has stood over the COVID regulations being used um, to issue fines and threaten prosecution against people who've attended socially distanced protests against racism in support of BLM um, and also against uh, gender violence recently in the uh, in the wake of uh, the killing of Sarah Everard. Um, more generally, though, I think that the riots are a reflection of the fact that, um, you know, the so-called peace process, which has existed for the last, you know, quarter of a century, um, has failed to overcome the divisions between working class communities here uh, here, and instead has um, tended to institutionalise that division. Um, I mean, I think one of the most poignant photographs from the recent events has been a young person throwing a petrol bomb at a again, euphemistically named Peace Gate between Catholic and Protestant communities in Belfast. Um, and the gate has a Benjamin Franklin quote on it, which says there was never a good war or a bad peace. But a bad peace is precisely what we've had in Northern Ireland, you know, for the past uh, 25 years. And nothing sums that up more than the fact that the number of peace walls between Catholic and Protestant working class communities has actually increased since the Good Friday Agreement was signed, rather than uh, rather than decreasing. Like the, the the Good Friday Agreement brought together nationalist and unionist politicians at the top in an uneasy agreement to disagree. In reality, one of the few things that there was genuine consensus on was the implementation of austerity and of privatization of neoliberal um, policies. Um, but those same politicians have a vested interest in maintaining sectarian division because that's where their power comes from and they, they whip up tensions and division whenever it suits them. And the peace process has not delivered you know, real material gains for working class communities. The, the young people from 
you know, both Catholic and Protestant communities who were involved in the, the riots recently, some as young as, as 13, are from communities which are still you know, deeply scarred by the past, with communities that have huge levels of poverty, of deprivation, of mental health uh, crises, and so on, uh, and young people who feel that they have little hope of a decent future. And that creates the alienation and the anger which can fan the flames of sectarianism and can see a new generation um, unfortunately, potentially becoming you know, the foot soldiers of sectarian um, forces. Um, just a final point I'd like to make is that that's a warning about what can happen in the future. I mean, I, th- I think the, the events that we've seen over the last week have been bad enough, but they're only a taste of what could happen in the future if you know a positive anti-sectarian and working class alternative isn't uh, built. Um, particularly around the question of a, a border poll, um, which means a, a referendum on the question of remaining in the UK or becoming part of a United Ireland. And that's something which has become more and more central in political discussion here um, because of the growth of the Catholic community um, relative to the Protestant community and the potential uh, that a majority might actually in the near future vote for a, a United Ireland. I mean, I think in the context of the profound divisions which exist in our society. Um, you know, unlike in Scotland where an independence referendum would see, you know, where the main division would be along class lines as to whether or not you supported independence. Um, in a border poll in Northern Ireland, uh, people would overwhelmingly line up into their two community camps. It would in reality be nothing more than a sectarian um, headcount with a winner and a loser. Uh, and it wouldn't point towards a peaceful and democratic resolution of, of the uh, national question here. It would actually point towards the potential for increased violence and conflict, even a return to the kind of violence which we saw uh, in the past during the period known um, as, as, the, as the Troubles. And you know, while the only options on the table are you know, one or other of these, you know, these capitalist states which are riven with poverty and inequality there's really no way out and we have to find pose a fundamentally different and socialist alternative to the, to the, both of those dead ends on offer Thanks Daniel, even though I think that it sounds kind of a lot of doom and gloom you know, <laughs> we know like we, we talked a little bit about before about how Northern Ireland as a state uh, is uh, celebrating 100 years uh, this year but Throughout those 100 years, there wasn't really much of a period that was peaceful, really. Obviously, there's the culmination of the troubles in the 70s till the um, till the 90s. But even after the Good Friday Agreement, like you said, there's been this kind of like bubbling of um, sectarian tensions. And now it seems like there's this kind of end of the status quo that existed for the past uh, few decades. So, like you said, it sounds like kind of like unresolvable is it really unresolvable what can socialists like what what is the position that the isa but also generally socialists should put forward uh, against this position of um kind of two camps fighting against each other uh, on the basis of nationality yeah, well, I mean, of course, we, we do think that there is uh, an alternative solution. If we didn't, we wouldn't be engaged in, in, the, in the fight to try and build a socialist alternative uh, here today. And 
yeah, I mean, despite all of the, the dangers and negatives in the situation, which I think it's important for socialists to, to uh, acknowledge, um, I mean, we do have an optimistic outlook and we do think that working class people have the ability to overcome sectarian division um, uh, and actually to build a movement that can not just challenge sectarianism, but also the capitalist system itself in which um, that division is uh, is rooted. And I mean, I think that a small but a really important example um, of the power of the working class to change society here was seen during the recent riots when um, bus workers in Belfast walked out uh, in protest against an attack on one of their colleagues uh, during during the riots, and they said that they wouldn't, uh, you know, regretfully, they, they wouldn't go into those areas again at night until their safety could be guaranteed. And, of course, they made the point that many of the, them come from these communities which were affected um, by uh, by the rioting. Um, and I think that, that that initiative on their part and, the, like, the, the rally that they held really kind of, um, it kind of encompassed the mood and the sentiment of the majority of working class people here, um, you know, who, who do not want a return to the sectarian violence uh, of the past. And, you know, it's a small example of an important tradition in Northern Ireland of working class people coming together to stand up in opposition to sectarian violence, something which, you know, was seen even during the darkest days of the 25 years of conflict, which has, you know, become known as the as the Troubles. Um, but, I mean, I think it's also po- uh, important to point to the fact that, you know, in the early 1990s, it was actually protests, strikes and demonstrations organised by organised workers, by, by trade unionists, which played a crucial role in actually pushing the um, sectarian... Uh, forces the paramilitaries to end their military campaigns to call ceasefires and push the unionist and nationalist politicians um, in the direction of a, a political uh, agreement as, as flawed as it was and it definitely remains the case here that most working class people remain vociferously opposed to you know, any prospect of going back to the the violence of the past and there's also an, an innate potential for class unity, um, for people to come together across the sectarian divide uh, around their common interests. That was reflected in the strikes of health workers that we saw just before uh, COVID. Uh, It's reflected in struggles, important struggles we've seen of young workers uh, in sectors like hospitality fighting against precarious uh, conditions. Um, But it's also importantly reflected in movements of young people against sexism, racism, the threat of environmental uh, destruction. Um, And I think that any attempt or any threat of a return to the violence of the past will also see people come onto the streets uh, and protest and try to uh, oppose it. And whenever working class people and young people come together and struggle, that poses the potential to build a socialist challenge to, you know, both the sectarian and ultimately pro-capitalist camps of unionism and, uh, and nationalism. But those opportunities have to be seized. And, you know, in the 1960s in Northern Ireland, there were huge opportunities posed, you know, uh, growth in working class unity and support for socialism, profound radicalisation taking place in society. But because that opportunity wasn't seized by the Labour leadership. Unfortunately, the decade ended instead of with socialist change, it ended in the beginning of the uh, of the troubles and a conflict which would see you know three and a half thousand people lose their lives. 
So, I mean, I, I think that socialists have to be extremely sensitive um, to the genuinely held fears and aspirations of working class people from both communities um, and approach every question in a way which is about emphasising uh, class unity and trying to cut across uh, the potential for sectarian division, um, which is something I think the, the Socialist Party and ISA can, you know, say that we that's something that we proudly, uh, you know, try to do every day. Um, but unfortunately, some other forces on the left often tend to fall into one sectarian camp or the other and that, that limits their ability to, um, you know, to, to play a role in challenging sectarian division. I mean, ultimately, we think that within the framework of capitalism, there is no solution to, this, uh, to the, the national question in Ireland, whatever it's about a society with division and inequality built, uh, built into it. Um, so, I mean, we stand for a struggle for a socialist Ireland where the democratic rights of all communities would be guaranteed as part of a voluntary and equal federation with Scotland, England and Wales. Um, we would favour that being you know, a unitary single state, um, but, but not one which is imposed against the will of the, of the Protestant uh, community. We're not in favour of changing, swapping one form of coercion and oppression for another. Um, we think that you know, united struggle for a socialist future uh, can break down the barriers between communities um, and hopefully would lay the basis for, uh, for unity across the, uh, across the island. Um, but uh, you know, we, we also uh, say that we recognise the right of the Protestant community if they still had lingering concerns to you know, some form of autonomy or even potentially a separate um, state. Um, but we would see that as being, you know, a a temporary arrangement, which would be a step towards the final dissolution of all barriers between people on this island. I want to thank you both for coming on our show here today. It's been an excellent episode. And as Dan mentioned, everyone should get a copy of Troubled Times by Peter Haddon. You can find it in the, in the link below so you can understand the full history of what we were talking about here today. And now we're going to go to the shout out of the week where we're talking about our Spanish version of World to Win called Mundo por Ganar. Um, and a few weeks ago, we had an episode talking about the situation in Brazil and Mexico. But on April 24th, we have our next episode and we're going to be talking about the elections in Ecuador and Peru. So for all of you who speak Spanish and for anyone who knows someone who speaks Spanish, make sure you share our video and you'll be able to find it here on our YouTube channel. Um, of the International Socialist Alternative. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in with us today. And as Yara said, you can hear us on your podcast if you want to, you know, listen while you work, which I know I like to do, um, if you can't sit in front of your screen and watch us. Um, so check us out and see you next week, same time, same place. This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective.